Welcome to the Future Tech edition of the Finding Genius podcast. Forget frequently asked questions, forget common sense, common knowledge, or Googling for information. How about advice from a genius in their field instead? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are the geniuses of their profession. Richard has made it his life's mission to interview the geniuses of their fields in areas such as AI, 3D printing, quantum computing, blockchain and Bitcoin, and more. Don't miss out on amazing podcasts with geniuses. Review us on iTunes or wherever you listen and go to futuretech.findinggeniuspodcast.com and subscribe today. Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast series. I have uh, Rittorio Sebastiano. He's the co-founder and scientific advisory board chairman of Turn Bio. Website is turn.bio. We're going to be talking about uh, potentially reversing aging by reprogramming cells. So, Vittorio, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Yeah, hi. Hi, Jacob. Pretty good. How are you? Pretty good, yeah. Well, my cells could could uh, use some rejuvenating, but uh, let's see what's, what's in store there. So, tell me about uh, Turn Bio and about your work there. What's uh, the premise of Turn Bio? Sure. Uh, well, uh, what we do at Turn Bio, so the, the, the principle, the idea behind uh, behind the work that we do at Turn uh, is uh, that uh, it is possible uh, to um, reverse uh, the epigenetic landscape uh, of the cells and uh, bring it back in time so that, you know, a cell which by the process of aging becomes dysfunctional with time can actually be... Uh, uh, reprogrammed or reversed in a way that you know it, now it becomes more youthful, more functional, uh, and this could potentially have you know repercussions on the cell itself, but also broadly speaking, also systemically um, in the in the individual. Um, so the, the the basic the basic principle that we we apply is that we believe we believe that fundamentally aging the cellular level happens because there is uh, the so-called epigenetic epigenetic drift so this uh, epigenome which is you know broadly speaking refers to a program in the cells that regulates or controls what genes a cell should express or should not express becomes dysfunctional with time and this is i mean it's not necessarily the primary cause of aging it it is potent possibly, you know, a secondary cause of aging, which is triggered by other factors, pollution, inflammation, uh, uh, damage of, of, any, of any kind. Uh, but, you know, these, these damages, you know, result at the end of the day into a, a change in the, in the way this epigenome is organized and regulated. And in the long time, you know, this progressive accumulation of, of mistakes uh, lead to uh, a dysfunctional cell type which, you know, explains uh, uh, aging. So what- All right, Vittorio, Vittorio. Yeah. yeah, from what I understand, uh, epigenetic changes are an adaptation of, you know, an organism to different changes. So if I live at, let's say, a high altitude, I would probably experience, you know, some of my genes upregulating and downregulating to accommodate, or if I live in a hot climate or if I have a certain diet, so it's, it's an adaptation of the organism as it lives and that's part of epigenetic change, right? Absolutely. So the 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 epigenetic the epigenetic programming is actually kind of the this uh, 
I think it was it was a very it, it doesn't exist in all the organisms you know in the in the you know meth methylation for example doesn't exist in you know in uh, in bacteria for example and uh, it's actually a, an evolutionary trick that actually I think allowed multiple species actually to to react in real time uh, to to changes in the environments uh, because it's it's really like this uh, analog type of you know uh, program. Uh, that is very malleable, very very elastic, very very plastic, and can be can rapidly you know respond actually to the changes in the environment. Um, now, for the most what part, the, what does epigenetic change look like on a molecular level? I've heard about you know, for instance, methylation. I've heard about uh, you know changing of histones. I mean, you know, yeah. In your view, what are some of the ways that? Uh, epigenetic change happens and what does that do? Just give me a basic overview. Sure. Yeah, well, well there, is, there is different mechanisms of uh, epigenetic regulation. So one of the most obvious, the known, is the, the methylation of the, of the DNA. Methylation can occur at the level of uh, the cytosines, which, is, which are, you know, uh, bases in the, in the DNA. And uh, these changes of the uh, of, 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 of these bases, you know, can modulate, for example, gene expression. So they can they can uh, turn off or turn on specific genes in response of you know the um, how many of those cytosines are are methylated or unmethylated. Uh, but that's only one example. There's actually way more. Uh, for example, the uh, the histone modification. So histones are proteins around which the DNA is wrapped. And so the positioning of the histones uh, on the DNA, on the sequence, but also specific modifications of those histones can regulate gene expression. Uh, again, they can turn on or off genes depending on, the, um, on how uh, these, these histones are positioned and or uh, modified. Uh, but actually, there is there is way more than that. For example, even the, the organization of the chromatin, so uh, the organization of the DNA uh, within the nucleus, uh, is an epigenetic trait. So broadly speaking, epigenome is basically a layer of regulation, which is that does not depend on the sequence. That's what epi means. It means beyond. It means beyond the genetic. So it's, it's a regulation mechanism that is not dependent on the sequence of the DNA, but it's dependent on other modifications which uh, change and modify the DNA uh, and the chromatin in time and space. All right, so from my understanding, epigenetic changes will either upregulate or downregulate genes, meaning that the gene will express more or express less, sometimes not at all. Yeah. What about the, um, the underlying DNA? Have you observed or has it been observed that epigenetic changes can reshuffle the underlying DNA, cut out pieces or add pieces to it? Or is it just the underlying DNA is kept and it's just uh, how the genes are expressed has changed? Fundamentally, it's how the genes, uh, um, how the genes are expressed. Uh, now, this, though, can happen in different ways. So as I said, you know, one way, a very simple way of looking at it is a gene is on or off. Then there is like how much. So when it's on, how much is it on? Uh, and so there is also kind of nuances of epigenetic regulation that can 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 regulate how much a gene is is activated. So it can be very highly activated, or it can be just you know expressed at very low levels. And again, uh, epigenetic changes 
can uh, can regulate are, are actually the main regulators of, of this behavior. Uh, but then there are also uh, a gene can be on, off, or highly activated or you know lowly activated depending on on where it is in the nucleus. Uh, and again, you know the epigenetic changes and the 3D uh, chromatin organization uh, can uh, can regulate the positioning of, or the structure. Uh, the structural features of, 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 of the gene or of the, you know, the, the niche where the gene is located. And this can actually influence how, how much a gene you know, is, is activated or, or, or inactivated. Okay. Um, so what happens when, um, you know, throughout someone's life, I figure they acquire epigenetic marks. Um, how do you tie this into the appearance of disease or senescence of cells for getting old? What, uh, what patterns have you seen in people that as they age, maybe their, their marks are piling up in a certain way? Like what, what have you seen? Yeah. So the, um, in, in, complete, in complete honesty, actually, we, we are just starting to understand uh, uh, what aging means uh, at the molecular level and at the cellular level. I mean, we, we obviously uh, know that aging occurs. Uh, we see it happening you know, <laughs> every day when we, when you look into the mirror. But really, at the at the molecular level, at the at the at the cellular level, what this means, uh, we we don't we we haven't you know completely understood yet. Well, what what do we understand? Are we seeing certain patterns? We like, do. is there a, you know? Okay, so what are you seeing, and how is that correlated? So we we do we do see patterns. For example, as I said before, you know, we see that with time, the set of genes that a specific cell type. So just let's let's just make a, like an example, you know, neurons, for example, in the brain. We know that with time, uh, the the neurons, and this applies to any other cell type in the body. We know that with time, you know, the cells lose the ability to properly and correctly express the set of genes uh, which are supposed to be expressed in that in that cell type. Uh, so the identity of the cell remains the same. So a neuron. You know, in a in a ten years old uh, individual or a neuron in a ninety years old individual is still a neuron. Okay, so there is a fundamental epigenetic profile that has not changed so much to explain you know a change in cell identity. So again, the neuron is still a neuron. The problem is that the neuron in a in an older individual is dysfunctional, meaning that it expresses genes that are not supposed to be there, or it does not express genes that should be there, and what what you know what we are we are understanding we are learning that actually this process uh, can be triggered by different phenomena, as I said before, inflammation, for example, increase in uh, reactive oxygen oxygen species, damage of any kind, but fundamentally, you know, this results in a change of the epigenetic profile of that cell. So with time, some small epigenetic changes occur and you know they kind of accumulate over and over and over uh, but it's, at some point you kind of you reach a threshold where you know they are no longer sustainable and so the cell now becomes dysfunctional and it can become dysfunctional in many different ways of course uh, the extreme one of the extreme is that you know it may turn for example into you know a carcinogenic cell or you know it can become a senescent cell or in most of the cases, you know, it doesn't become senescence. It doesn't be senescent. It doesn't become uh, carcinogenic. So it is still the same cell, but it's just dysfunctional. It doesn't express the proper set of genes that should be should be expressed there. 
So what we what we believe is that you know by understanding this mechanism better, we can actually leverage on on that and reprogram you know those those changes and bring them back in time to a more functional and youthful state. Someone looked at the um, I know that you know in cancer uh, cells will have different genes or not you know that are mutated, but what about the epigenetics of cancer cells? Has anyone looked at that and done a comparison to uh, non-cancer cells? Yeah, people are, uh, you know, absolutely, they're, 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 they're looking at that. And it is interesting to also realize that, you know, wh when you look at the, the mutations, uh, of course, you know, a cancer is, is, a, is, is a much more complex, in a way, uh, disease. Um, and, but it, it's very interesting to, for example, to realize that some of the early mutations, and this seems to be true across different mm, cancer types, some of the first uh, uh, of the of the first mutations that occur and that, that can eventually lead to the to the formation of a tumor uh, occur actually in in genes that are responsible for the epigenetic regulation of the of the cells. So, for example, uh, DNA methyltransferases. So these are these are enzymes that regulate the methylation of the DNA uh, or the TET enzymes. Again, these are uh, enzymes that are uh, that are important to 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 regulate you know nuances of uh, uh, of the methyl methylation profile of the DNA um, histone modifiers for example so though these these probably are are the first mutations so once once the epigen the epigenetic regulation becomes dysfunctional and in the context of course of cancer is triggered by by a mutation by a genetic mutation uh, then you have the progression of the cancer and you have the progression of the disease. With aging, it's not necessarily a mutation in the gene, but it's a, it's a progressive accumulation of random of random mistakes in the in the epigenome. Provide a clue then, if if uh, some of the genes involved with epigenetic changes are the first to mutate or the first to go, do you know have people observed that cancer for some reason it's more epigenetically fluid? Does it tend to acquire marks or remove marks quicker? than normal cells or in a different way? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, that's actually known. Again, the, the, the granularity of this, uh, of this uh, hasn't yet been uh, uh, fully understood, but it is absolutely obvious that from an epigenetic standpoint and also then from a metabolic standpoint, uh, the, the cancer cells become in a way more youthful uh, and uh, you know that also explains why they are you know, so aggressive, they proliferate so efficiently uh, and they kind of occupy niches in a very, very, you know, efficient way. So yes, I think, I think there is also a lot to learn by understanding that process and, you know, kind of leveraging that knowledge and repurposing it uh, for a different question, which is, uh, you know, a more physiological um, aging or rejuvenation, if you, if you will. How do you determine that a cell is more youthful? What, what tells you that, you know, from an epigenetic standpoint, does it just have fewer marks or is it the pattern of the marking or you know what yeah what tells you that yeah so that's that's thank you that's that's a million dollar question in the sense that well when we when we started this work about five years ago um i i was i was stunned by and uh, very surprised by the fact that you know there hasn't been yet uh kind of a unifying uh, uh theme to explain aging and, and and you know in retrospect probably that that makes a lot of sense so with, with the exception probably of the methylation clock uh, that we, we can probably, you know, touch upon uh, uh, later, 
there and, and by the way, even in that in that case, there there, there is not yet kind of a, a deterministic in a way picture of that phenomenon. What we see with aging is that you know that the, the, the there is a number of changes that occur with with time. So. Um, there was a nice work, a nice review that was uh, was written by Manuel Serrano and, and others um, that defined for the first time the hallmarks uh, of aging. Uh, and I think that was a very, very great work because it really helped us kind of uh, define in a very broad way still, but define, you know, this process of aging. And, and uh, basically what they proposed was, was a number of hallmarks from senescence to epigenetic changes, uh, nutrient, nutrient, nutrient sensing regulation, uh, stem cell homeostasis, and, and, and many more, uh, mitochondrial dysfunction, uh, hallmarks that all together explain age. Now, some cells may age, for example, uh, for you know, primarily uh, with regards to some of these hallmarks. So it's 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 not necessarily true that you know the cells as they age, uh, change their, you know, profiles of, you know, across all the hallmarks. So that, that this is a very important, you know, thing to keep in mind. Um, but they do, you know, to some extent, you know, this, you know, they, they, they do across some or sometimes all of these hallmarks. So when, when we think, when we define aging at the cellular level, I think we have to be very, very careful and uh, be agnostic of the fact that uh, we, we, should, we should probably be looking at all these hallmarks uh, and you know some may change, some may not. Uh, and uh, when we define the rejuvenation, we have also to holistically and comprehensively look at all of these mar- uh, hallmarks altogether. Uh, methylation changes, you know, are definitely one of these. You know, epigenetic changes are definitely one of these hallmarks. Uh, and some people, you know, have developed, for example, methylation clocks uh, that can predict the chronological or biological age of a sample or of a cell type just by looking at the methylation profile of a, of a cell. Now, we don't, we don't understand yet if those changes are deterministic. So we don't know if those changes are causing aging or if they're just correlated with aging. Um, so we, we don't know that yet. And we don't know if there are specific hotspots in the genome where you know if if a methylation you know change occurs, then this triggers a number of processes you know down the road. We don't know that yet. We just know that you know those changes occur, and when we see that ha- them happen, then we can define that cell you know aged or or older in a way. So what are what are some of the correlations you see in senescent cells? I mean, well, here's a question. So is senescence broken up into different stages or? I don't know, is it like a monolithic thing? Or again, is it broken up somehow and characterized into different stages or I don't know, different aspects or phenotypes? Yeah, well, the, the first distinction that I would like to, to do, Richard, is the, the fact that uh, senescence is one aspect of aging. It's not necessarily aging per se. Uh, so as our body ages, some of the cells enter senescence, but it's only a small fraction of the cells that enter senescence. And uh, when, when, when I speak about, when I say senescence, I mean replicative senescence. So, you know, the cells at some point accumulate a number of epigenetic, but also genetic damage. For example, telomere attrition, telomere erosion. And this basically leads to uh, the fact that the cells stop dividing. Uh, and this, in a way, is actually good because, you know, this mechanism prevents, for example, the cells, or, or it's kind of a QC, a checkpoint, 
uh, the cells are so damaged they could actually go down the, the cancerous kind of path. Senescence actually is a mechanism to prevent that. Uh, and it has also been shown that senescence is uh, probably a mechanism or a phenomenon that helps the regeneration of tissues uh, in, in, in very specific context. Now, the downside, though, of senescence is that, you know, uh, these cells, of course, you know, they stop dividing, and again, for good reason, but then they start, they start secreting, you know, the, the, the inflammatory cytokines and so forth. But again, I would like to remind everybody that this is just 1% uh, uh, of the cells in, a, in, a, in an older body. The vast majority of the cells uh, in, a, in, a, in an older body or, you know, in an aged body are aged, but not necessarily senescent. So this is a very important distinction that I would like to, to, to make because uh, our technology, for example, could complement existing technologies that, is, that are already out there. Uh, for example, senolytics. So with senolytics, basically the idea is that you, you, you provide a, a molecule, a drug or, or whatever, uh, you specifically target the senescent cells. So again, this one to 5% of the cells in the body, you, you clear them out, uh, and these, on, so by doing so, you would reduce the inflammatory cytokines, and this could have a systemic beneficial effect on the body. But that doesn't make it; it makes the body more functional in a way, you know, less uh, uh, inflamed. You know, it reduces inflammation, but it doesn't make it younger by by all means. You know, of all the cell types in the body, um, in the human body at least, which cells are easiest to work with to understand senescence? Do you pick ones that are long lived? and therefore maybe slowly come to senescence, or you look at fast dividing ones that maybe have a very short life cycle and show, you know, or, or are there cells that for some reason in people or mice that show senescence first early on? No, I, I would say that, you know, senescence, you know, is, is a, senescence happens in all the tissues at different degrees. Some tissues are less prone just, just because of, you know, the way they have been, you know, designed over, over time. Uh, for example, you know, the intestine, uh, it's highly, highly proliferative. And so there is a, a reduced degree of senescence in the, in the, in the tissues that where there is less proliferation, you know, the cells, there is a higher percentage of, of senescence. And then there could be situations, you know, like, for example, fibrosis or, you know, heart failure. You know, there, there could be some context where, you know, senescence, just because of the damage that has been induced, is a, is a very predominant uh, phenomenon, you know, specifically in that tissue. Uh, now these studies in vivo, of course, have uh, some. Many have been have been done, but you know it, it's really difficult to understand. So senescence primarily has been has been studied in vitro, uh, and so there is ways to induce senescence by DNA damage or, or other means. Uh, and so this is kind of a proxy in vitro of what happens in vivo. Uh, and so all we know primarily about senescent cells comes from in vitro studies where we induce this this phenomenon. And senescence also naturally occurs. So if you take if you take cells uh, from from an individual and you just grow them up, uh, you know over time they reach this uh, you know the the, the Hayflick limit, and uh, that this, this this obviously what was 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 uh, described by by Hayflick, uh, and uh, the, the, at some point the the cells they exhaust just because you know again their, their telomeres shorten and at some points they don't cycle anymore just because they can't. At that point, they enter replicative senescence. So that's kind of a more natural form of senescence, if you wish. But again, you know, it's an in vitro, it's an in vitro model of, of senescence. Uh, right now, people are, are looking into, you know, in vivo models of this. And so all the senolytics, for example, work has been, has been done 
uh, with some uh, some animal models that of, of, of this. So in the world of senescence, how big of a role are epigenetic marks, do you believe? A tremendous role? And if so, is that is that really the focus of Turn Bio then, is to establish what correlations there are between epigenetic marks and senescence? Or like, how would you put it best? No, actually, what, what I would say is that we, we are complementing the, the work uh, of uh, anti-senescence approaches. Actually, if you the, the senescent cells are so much damaged that you don't want to reprogram them. You don't want to bring them back into, into the game. Uh, actually, the way we are thinking about this problem is that, again, maybe with analytics, you, we can clear up the senescence and so get them out of the equation uh, and then reprogram and rejuvenate. So the cells are still there. They are non-senescent, so they're still replicative, but they're just dysfunctional. Uh, again, reprogramming the senescent cells would be probably a very bad idea, and that's what definitely not what we want to do. We want to get them out uh, of the equation and then rejuvenate and epigenetically reprogram the cells that are still functional, uh, that are, sorry, that are still there, but they're just dysfunctional from an epigenetic standpoint. Well, at least we thought of one good thing of what not to do. (laughs) (laughs) So in terms of the reprogramming, what does that look like? What does that mean? Yeah, so the reprogramming again, yeah, this this is a very broad term that is used in different with different meanings in different contexts. So just just to to, clari- to clarify a little bit. So broadly speaking, reprogramming means changing one cell type into another cell type. So this is how typically is used in the in the scientific community. So for example, reprogramming a skin cell into an embryonic like cell or reprogramming a skin cell into a neuron or into an hepatocyte and so forth. So primarily people think about reprogramming as a change in cell identity. The way we think about this, it's not a change in cell identity, but it's a change in cellular age. So as I said before, the same way the epigenetics uh, explain why a cell should express a set of genes and not another set of genes, uh, the same way, you know, in, in a very similar way, basically, epigenetic explains why the same cell type changes uh, expression profiles over time. Uh, so our reprogramming is, is, is a reprogramming of the epigenetic signature of age. So the real, the core principle here is that by um, controlling, you know, tightly uh, the time and the duration of the reprogramming, we can bring, we can erase those epigenetic uh, mistakes that have been accumulated over time, and we can make a younger version of the same cell type without changing its identity. This is very important because it's actually, uh, you know, one of the fears that some people have that, you know, by pushing too much this reprogramming, you, you, you could actually change the identity of the cells. But our data demonstrates so far that if you can, if you know the biology of that specific, specific cell type or, or tissue, and if you know exactly you know, the time that's required for the cells to rejuvenate but not change cell identity, so that's really the key. And that's exactly where, that, that's where our technology you know, is powerful because we understand that process and we don't push, we don't push the boundaries too, too much. What, what does the process look like? You know, I know you can't say, some, some of it's proprietary, that's okay. Yeah, well, In the realm of, realm of what you can say, what is the process like? Oh, no, it's, it's, it's something that I, I can definitely share with you. Uh, so we, obviously, our our the the vision, the big vision, is that we will be able one day to do this in vivo, 
uh, without you know extracting the cells uh, from 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 the from the body. Uh, again, this is our long-term goals, uh, and we already have a plan actually to tackle to tackle this this goal. And but in the short term, the way we are doing it uh, or the way we are envisioning it is to do this therapy ex vivo. So we we isolate the cells, whatever cell type. Uh, what we have we have a couple of indications that have already been uh, prioritized. But the, the idea is that we isolate the cells from uh, the body, from the, the individual, the patients. Uh, we rejuvenate them in vitro, uh, and then these cells go back uh, into their original tissue or, or niche. Uh, we have shown this to be extremely powerful, for example, for, for muscle stem cells. So when we extract the stem cells, the muscle stem cells, from the, uh, from the skeletal muscles, uh, and we, we treat them, uh, for just two days, 48 hours. So it's very short. Uh, and we put them back into, into animal models. We see that we can basically restore the, the, the muscle function of a young uh, um, mouse. Uh, this is, we're talking about, about, we're talking about, yeah, 30 to 40% of a force induction, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, if we can do this with stem cells now, since stem cells have these, you know, are naturally endowed with this ability to self-renew uh, and to differentiate into the cells of the tissue, uh, if if we can do this with stem cells, now we have we we have a very long-term effect. And we again we have shown this in mice. You know, we have seen an effect of the rejuvenation all the way up to two months after the treatment. And and again, two months might not be sound, you know, too exciting, but you know, two months in a in a lifespan of of a mouse is about you know, it's it's a lot, <laughs> uh, and so it's probably it's probably fifteen to twenty years. Uh, you know, when it comes to human human lifespan, so it's it's pretty significant. Of course, you know, we need to do more work. We need to show that this is this is really applicable and safe. You know, there's obviously a ton of work to do, but preclinical data and preclinical studies show that actually this is pretty remarkable and 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 efficient. Literally, what what have you done to the muscle cells to make them uh, more youthful? And again. How do you know, okay, they're more youthful now? Like what tells you that? What kind of, uh, what's changed in the cells? Yeah, so uh, the treatment is very simple. So we extract the, the stem cells uh, from the muscle. And uh, the good thing is that we, we actually have, uh, um, uh, we have two patents uh, which are exclusive to, to turn. So one is the, of course, is the, obviously is the one on the, on the epigenetic reprogramming of aging. And the other one is, is a patent that was developed by one of the three co-founders of, of the company, um, Marco Quarta. Um, he, he, was, he, he was working as a postdoc back then in the, in the, in the Rando, Thomas Rando lab. He's, he's an expert in uh, aging and muscle biology. Uh, and so long story short, uh, Marco and, and Tom developed a way to extract the stem cells from the muscle and keep the stem cells quiescent, so preserving, in, in, in other words, preserving their stemness uh, ability. Uh, by combining that technology, again, which is exclusively licensed by TURN, with the epigenetic reprogramming of aging, which is just a, a very short reprogramming of 48 hours, by combining the two uh, and by transplanting then the cells that, you know, Presumably rejuvenated back into the mice, we have shown that actually the you know there is there is an increase in the muscle regeneration. So the cells now are behaving like like youthful cells. So they regenerate the muscles much faster. They form more fibers and thicker fibers, and so the entire volume of the of the muscle is rejuvenated. 
from a physiological standpoint, they're also juvenile, so they have a higher mitochondrial functionality, more ATP production, uh, they cycle better. Uh, but most importantly, uh, they do not form uh, tumors. So the only thing that they do is just they form more fiber, they, they form muscle fibers, more and thicker, uh, but they don't form any other form of, you know, dysplasia or, or cysts or, or tumors. And this is very important because, you know, again, speak, it speaks for the safety of the, of the approach. Do they continue on their path of normal aging once you've, uh, once you've set them back, you know, restored some of their youthfulness? Do they just normally age from there or do they seem to age differently? Well, we, we have not done a comprehensive set of studies in, in that regard. Uh, what we know is that two months after, as I said, if we, if we go back to the same mice and, and we induce a second injury in the muscle, we see that actually the, the cells you know, uh, regenerate the tissues uh, in, a, in a very, very similar fashion as, as if they were very young. So there is a memory of that process. Now, quite honestly, my, my hunch is that yes, they will obviously, they will, they will, they will age because you know, of course they are in an age organism and you know, aging is a, is a very physiological process that occurs. Uh, so they, they, they will age. We don't know yet if they age at a different pace uh, or if somehow they are a little bit more resistant to that process or, you know, they just, they're just, you know, brought back in time and then, you know, their clock, their clock for them starts at an earlier start, uh, starting point. So we don't know that yet. Uh, so, of course, we, we need to do more studies. But uh, we do see that at least two months after the treatment, there's still a memory of that process and the cells are still young by, by all means. How do the, um, the surrounding cells interact with the de-aged uh, muscle cells? Do you see any different cell-to-cell -cell communications or interactions that weren't there before? So those are, um, we, we are doing those studies as we speak. So we, we, we anticipate that actually these, these um, cell autonomous rejuvenation will also have uh, a cell non-autonomous effect. So this, this will have also obviously repercussions on the surrounding tissues. Uh, but we are we are trying to understand that process uh, better. But I don't I don't have a definitive answer yet. And once you alter the cells again, you, you so you don't know the interactions they're having with other cells. Um, the rest of the mouse just seems to be as it was. Um, well, again, we we we, we so so far we, we haven't looked at that question yet. Uh, mm -hmm. The only thing that we know is just, you know, from a, from a physiological standpoint, uh, from a, you know, a functional standpoint, the muscle, the muscle where we transplanted the cells is much, much better. Uh, we, we, we haven't measured yet if, you know, there is also a systemic, a systemic uh, benefit by simply transplanting, you know, rejuvenated stem cells. So we don't know that yet, but it, it wouldn't be any different in my opinion. But again, we need to, to prove that or to, to study that in a little bit more depth, but it wouldn't be any different from, uh, uh, you know, the current, the current technologies where you take, for example, young stem cells and you transplant young stem cells from a donor into, an, into a recipient. So again, in that case, you, you have, yes, truly uh, young cells coming from a donor and you're putting them into, into an older individual. So, you know, you obviously you would expect those cells to, to kind of uh, communicate and interact with, with the host. The same, I think the same principles apply here. So the only difference, which is a big difference, is that the cells are not coming from a donor, are coming from yourself. Uh, and so there is-, there is Right, a, I, just, I just wonder if you de-age, you know, if you make one part of a, a creature's body youthful, yeah. you know, it still needs to interact properly with all the other parts um, in order to, you know, to 
bring youth back to someone, um, you might have to de-age multiple parts of them. Because if you only do one part, perhaps that, that part being more youthful will then put strain on the other parts to the point where you, you get this, you know, this unfortunate trade-off maybe that uh, the organism would die just as fast or sooner because of a different complication. You know, if I had a extremely young heart, but all the rest of me was old, uh, perhaps that just wouldn't work. Maybe I need multiple parts to be youthful in order to function properly. And this, uh, you know, two parts being way out of sync wouldn't work. I don't know. Just a thought. Oh, yeah, sure. That That is definitely a possibility. And uh, it is possible that, you know, of course, uh, we we may have to intervene on, on different on different tissues. On the other hand, though, you know, in 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 you know, in some instances, it's it's uh, you know, as we as we age, you know, we we increase the risk factor for for diseases, for example, heart failure. Now, uh, probably just just by keeping the young the the, the heart younger, uh, that 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 per se could actually prevent that from from happening. And 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 quite honestly, again, this is very early days, but it is possible that we may not have to. Uh, we, there could be some key tissues uh, that could actually be the target, and then these one or two tissues on their own could actually be uh, enough or sufficient, actually, for 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 triggering a systemic rejuvenation. So, for example, it's known that you know the endothelium, or it's known that the hypothalamus that there is there is kind of an endocrine, and and, and you know it's it's there is a regulation actually that is you know that is very systemic and which is regulated by these these key organs and so if you if we could for example just rejuvenate the endothelium so uh, the entire vasculature for example that on its own could have could have a, a very strong effect systemically and the same the same is true for other for other for other tissues so again this is very early days so it is possible that you know uh, we may have to work um, synergistically on many different organs or, and, and tissues it's also possible that you know just by rejuvenating one major one major tissue we may we may have uh, a very strong effect systemically uh, so we don't know that yet well very good what, what do you expect that you're going to be able to figure out over the next couple of years what what do you feel like is near at hand versus Things that may take a long time to figure out. I think that I'm 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 very optimistic on the fact that you know in the in the relatively short future, some of the indications that we have we have identified, you know, we will we will probably be be, be ready for for a, for a clinical for a clinical phase um, for a for a clinical trial. Um, and I, in particular, I'm thinking about you know again uh, sarcopenia or you know muscle muscle dysfunction, uh, osteoarthritis. And some uh, aging-associated conditions which affect the the skin, uh, for example, uh, hair loss, uh, hair discoloration, and, and and wound healing. So I'm 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 very positive that actually for for one or more of these indications we will soon have robust preclinical data actually to move to move forward. Uh, so this is in the short term. Uh, in the long term, I, I think that this technology can be can can go beyond uh, uh, you know uh, aging uh, and can actually be in a way applied to regenerative medicine uh, in in general so again if you if you extend the concept of aging uh, to the fact that you know cells lose with time the ability of doing something a specific function for example uh, regenerating uh, new rights or 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 accents for 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 the neurons for example if you could bring the clock back of that specific cell type to the point where the cells is still capable 
of, of regenerating the, the axons, then you can start thinking about many, many other implications and, and indications uh, which have more to deal with regenerative medicine, you know, rather than, you know, aging per se. And so I, I think I'm, I think that, you know, this is, this is really a technology that could be broadly applied to a variety of different conditions that could really change the way we think about uh, aging, but more in general, regenerative medicine. And so I'm very excited. About it. Well, that's great. Well, Vittorio, Vittorio Sebastiano from uh, TurnBio, Turn.bio. Thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you for, so much for, for having me, Richard. You've been listening to the Future Tech Edition of the Finding Genius Podcast. This podcast is information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed. Review us on iTunes or wherever you listen and subscribe today by going to futuretech.findinggeniuspodcast.com.